yeah, I, I really dislike the term smartness in part because, um, yeah, it is such an, one of those elastic terms that we talked about before, like technology, like infrastructure. In this case, it's deployed in very um, political, um, commercial ways. Uh, it can mean myriad things in different discourse communities. Tech developers are probably going to use it to mean, especially those that want to monetize their work, are using it probably to mean, again, the way Jathan Sadowski uses it. Something that is about what can render itself quantifiable, how can we extract data from as many things in the environment as we can to find ways to kind of cross-reference data streams to see how we can optimize something and model a system that actually embodies what we think are the most salient important values, which are typically economic and about maximizing economic profit and efficiency. Are those always the values that we should be prioritizing about everything else? There are other more kind of civic tech realms who realize that smartness, as problematic as that term itself is, could be used to talk about civic intelligences, things through kind of like open data sets or civic tech. This is Emily Holloway. You're listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast by Urban Affairs Review. In this four-part series, we're taking a wide-angled look at the relationship between cities and technology. Last time, we heard from six different scholars about what exactly technology is and how it is deployed in cities today, including Professor Shannon Mattern from the University of Pennsylvania, who you just heard from. This week, we're going to focus on smart cities. What are they exactly? Where do they come from? And how do they work? We'll start with Professor Iona Dada. She's in the Geography Department at the University College London. I don't know if you know much about the history of Shimla. Shimla used to be the colonial capital in the summer. So come summer, the whole British bureaucracy used to move from North India, from Delhi in North India, which used to get really hot in the summer, up to the hills and carry all of their paraphernalia, including the women, the children, the servants, and, and the bureaucratic officials up to Shimla to stay there for, for five months in the summer. So when we actually looked at the old historic records, the idea of order and modernity and progress was laid out in all of those um, improvement trust reports that the colonial government created from the early 19th century when the Shimla municipality was created. And you see resonances of that, even in the smart cities initiatives about order, uh, about progress. Uh, and often that order and progress is related to what disorder means. And disorder often means slums. Uh, and so one of the slums, uh, smart cities initiatives, even though sometimes it doesn't mention in all of the cities, it doesn't necessarily say that smart cities means slum free cities, but many cities interpreted that to be slum free cities. So one of the initiatives in many of these 100 smart cities was to remove the slums or to order the slums or to order informal settlements. So I would say in a way, the smart cities initiative is just one more moment in uh, a kind of imagination of a different kind of radical transformation through technology, but it's not really exceptional if you put it in context of the various moments that have come from the colonial period in which order and disorder have been a continuous anxiety of the colonial government and then the government that came afterwards. Iona, what do you mean exactly by post-colonialism? The way I have approached it so far and I think maybe I will probably also step out of calling myself post-colonial to 
finding a word that captures more what I want to do. Uh, but what I really want to understand is the kind of a genealogy of urbanization and genealogy of technology development and um, digitalization that has impacts or that has been impacted by transformations in state governance. Um, and so the post-colonial moment, that is when the global South countries slowly begin to gain independence and begin to actually transform their own ways of governmentality and their own ways of state governance is a very crucial moment in really understanding what's happening now. Because a lot of what's happening now in urban, urban transformations, technology transformations, has actually got genealogical foundations in colonial governance. Um, and in some cases, especially when you read colonial policies or colonial reports, you'd see so many aspects of that being used even now by post-colonial states. Um, and even in thinking about the future, that the idea that modernity is deeply rooted in technological improvements is a very colonial idea, and that is being used. So for me, post-colonialism is not really making a break from what was there before, but actually seeing continuities and genealogies of transformation on what is the role of the state? What is the role of development? What is the role of cities? What is the role of um, transformations in general uh, that affect social, political, cultural life on an everyday basis? And, and where the foundations lie, but how those, how those foundations have been maybe used or cleanly broken off uh, in order to approach a certain kind of a vision or imagination of a future. And like I said, this is where I think the post-colonial approach helped because we saw each city in India drawing upon its own history to talk about what it was, what was its identity before and what it wants to become in the future. In some cases, you see cities drawing upon that identity to project a new sort of identity. But in some cases, you see cities wanting to break from that past identity because that's kind of associated with underdevelopment or lack of development and wanting to go in a different way. Um, in terms of what they wanted to do, I think the overall smart cities mission, I think the goals of it were quite novel because in a way it could also be seen as a decolonial approach because it was really about decentralizing this understanding of what is this Western smart city into how each city would then interpret and execute their project. So that in itself was, I think, quite, quite interesting. And it laid out the possibility of each city kind of from the bottom up could determine what it wanted to do. So for the first time, they actually had public consultations. Um, and then they would create a list of what are the priorities for the public. And they would draw from civil society, from uh, residence associations um, and you know, small scale businesses to tell them what was needed. But often what happened with that is what was needed as a list from the citizens was not in line with what a smart city would be, as in driven by technology. Let's back up. You're talking about the 100 Smart Cities Initiative in India, right? Can you give our listeners a little bit more context on that program? It was really in the early moments, the Smart Cities Initiative, I think even before it was actually launched, that there was a, there was a proposal that India was going to create 100 new smart cities from scratch. What really fascinated me was that despite all of the infrastructural failures of the past, uh, that India was going to go all out to create these cities which were going to be ubiquitously wired 
and possible to predict, uh, possible to predict how the traffic would go, how people would, you know, dispose their waste, how electricity would uh, be censored and how watering water meters would be censored so in order to avoid leakage. So it was a very kind of, to me, it was a very Western model. And so that's when I began reading about smart cities. And that's how I landed up really looking at digital urbanisms. Uh, it was really from the perspective of understanding why at this moment are we looking at a particularly, I would say, radical kind of transformation in a global South city, which has so many other problems to deal with, kind of access to basic infrastructure for its most marginalized was to me the biggest priority. And the fact that at this moment to divert that attention into looking at creating 100 new smart cities, which has a whole host of issues, was the key concern for me. Um, and then, of course, very soon, I think the policy shifted from creating 100 new smart cities to retrofitting 100 existing smart cities, because mm. I think the realization was that it's impossible from every every point of view, politically, from land access, from investment, etc. Um, and so then I focused, of course, more at looking uh, at how these how these smart cities would actually manifest. Um, and the 100 smart cities as a policy that was initiated then in 2015, right after the early proposals and um, early imaginations, was that they would choose across India, uh, across all the subnational or the regional st states, a few cities to make it kind of universally across India. So it wouldn't be concentrated geographically. Um, and most of these cities actually landed up to be smaller sized cities. Uh, and it was seen more as a way of spurring growth and technology use and transforming governance, so to speak. Um, and then the smart city policy began as there is no universal smart city. And I was really excited to see that, that there was not going to be this kind of top down effect, but more that each city would then create its own vision for what it wanted to be smart. But. Over the period of these years, I think what has really happened is a lot of centralized power has determined what kinds of smart city projects are created. And it's been now well documented that most of it has not been successful in delivering the objectives. Um, they were initially pilot projects, but kind of ran out of steam in some cases. In some cases, the actual technology element, which was supposed to be the key element in making it labeled as smart, didn't land up happening uh, because of many, many different issues with technology transfer. And so uh, many of these projects have actually turned out to be regular infrastructure projects uh, with, again, some of the failings that we have seen in the past. That's really interesting that each city was given the latitude to craft a plan that was designed around their unique regional identity. But I wonder how this unfolded in practice. Were planners and officials actually responsive to local residents' needs and interests? If there was a need to create a public footpath, uh, that had to be a smart footpath. So then you would need to create sort of sensors that would light up lamps at pe as people would walk along the footpath. But in our conversations with, with citizens or citizen groups that say, that's just a gimmick, we don't need that. Uh, we, you know, we need a footpath that would just take us from, you know, that was keep us safe and not let us get into traffic. Um, we need, you know, a, a good waste disposal system in which waste workers would come and take 
take the waste from our house. Uh, but in doing so, particularly, I remember in, in Delhi Smart City, which was also very kind of limited to particular areas of the city, but in, in one area where they unrolled the uh, smart waste program, uh, the, the waste workers were the ones who were being monitored. Uh, and they created the system in which if your waste is not collected, the citizens can take a picture and upload it. But what happens is, is the waste workers job gets into the line. So rather than creating a system that would be efficient, it actually reinforced some of the social inequalities uh, in which people kind of uh, who are more precarious in that uh, hierarchy of employment would be the one that's targeted for lack of waste disposal. Um, so in, in many cases, basically what happened is the, the intentions of the program were quite uh, perhaps much more democratic than how it actually was executed and actually how it turned up and how then people interpreted it to be not successful or nothing that really uh, is going to impact on my everyday struggles. Um, the other aspect of it was that you can only, if you are thinking about a smart city that is driven by technology, you can only insert technology where the basic services are existing. So if you are living in a slum, there is hardly any way that you're going to get a smart waste system or a smart water system because you don't even have the water lines coming to your house. So often these smart water systems or smart waste systems would be piloted in middle class neighborhoods. Uh, and that sort of, of course, reinforces the, the social uh, and economic differences between different neighborhoods, between different social groups. And that really was something that for us, I mean, we we kind of wanted to see what impact it was having on, on the ground aspects of it. And that was some of the things that we fi found was really creating, uh, uh, you know, impossibility amongst the citizens in some cases to accept the smart city as it was being uh, executed. Um, and in, in more, we had these two projects. One was called Learning from Small Cities. And this Learning from Small Cities was really kind of targeting, looking at the smaller cities that were getting these smart cities initiatives and how they were executing them. Um, and in these Learning from Small Cities, we kind of divided it across three different themes. One was imaginaries, uh, which is how the small city imagined its future. And there we were looking at the different policies that it was and the initiatives that it had for smart city projects. Um, the imagination then led to the governing of it. So how was this smart city being governed? And what we found was that these smaller cities really didn't have the technology capacity or the resource capacity to execute these projects or to govern these smart cities projects because they had never had that kind of technology development as larger metropolitan cities. So we found the infiltration of a number of professional consultants, knowledge capital coming in and driving these smart cities projects, which then, of course, leads to more of a profit motive. And then the third aspect that we really looked at was uh, living with the smart city. Uh, and there we were talking directly to citizens and community members. And what came across then was that uh, there was a kind of uh, erasure of assets of the city that the smart city initiatives were not acknowledging uh, and some of these assets were tangible but also intangible like you know to do with spirituality to do with memory to do with you know history heritage these were not being acknowledged in some of the smart cities programs can you talk about any in particular that stood out to you uh, a very 
um, interesting example we came across is when uh, the smart city Shimla, which is a really small town in, in the hills, in the Himalayas up north, the consultants were from Delhi who had never actually designed or worked on anything in the hills. So they found it really, really difficult to even understand how the city is actually standing uh, or how is the city even working along a hillside, which is, uh, you know, really, really steep climbs up and down the hill. Uh, and so then one of the proposals was to flatten parts of it so that it's easier access and create elevators or escalators between different levels. Um, and, and, you know, this kind of lack of understanding, I think, of being in the place is what then impacts on citizens then thinking, well, this is not really meant for us. This is not what we want. Uh, and it's a kind of that disconnect, both kind of culturally, but also technologically, that disconnect and what we want is not what we are getting. And yet we don't seem to have a voice in directing what we want. Um, so there were all of these sorts of contestations and, and struggles in, in some cases, accepting what was happening, but also in some cases, direct pushback from citizens saying, no, this is what we want. Uh, and the municipality elected leaders saying, no, we know this is not what we want, but we can't really, we can't really change it because we have been told that this is what we have to do. Um, so there were all of these confusions as well. And, and most of the cases when we were talking to both elected officials, civil servants, citizen groups, the first question we were asked is, what is a smart city? Do you know what's a smart city? Because we still don't know what's a smart city. And our answer was, you know what, even we don't know. Um, because there's just so many definitions of a smart city. So did you ever land on a definition in the end? In terms of what smart is, I don't think, I don't think the smart cities mission ever had a, a prescriptive definition because it always said the cities need to decide, but the prescription was that it has to be technology led. Um, but when we did our workshops with the citizens, we were given a really fascinating description of smart. Uh, and one of the one of the representatives from the slums um, slum improvement committee, they said to us, "I don't think smart is about technology. I think smart is about making do the best with what you have." And in a way, that's also about resource efficiency. But he's really he was really speaking to the struggles of people in the margins. And he said, "Well, I earn very little money, but with that, I'm able to live. You know, have a family." keep a family, educate my children so that they have a better future. So being smart is about making the best with what you have in order to have a better future. And to me, that sort of struck as, as a more, maybe a more kind of um, what you would call a more subjective, a more contextual definition of being smart where technology perhaps is only one aspect of being smart. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess if we ask people, they will all have different definitions of smart, but a policy definition, a definition given by uh, the earlier definition given by all the, uh, the ICT global companies like IBM and all of that were about resource efficiency through technology. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you think about the earlier tropes like green cities, sustainable cities, um, you know, energy efficient cities, all of that indicates that we would need to make some changes to our lifestyle. Uh, and there would be a certain amount of pushback, particularly from the middle classes, much more privileged classes, as in, do I need to now start using public transport? Do I need to stop using my car? Whereas if you think about smart, it tells you that you don't need to change yourself. Technology will help make all the changes. 
so you can use 24-7 water. It's just that the water sensors are going to reduce leakage and wastage. So it's a very seductive idea. And it's that's why I think it's kind of circulated like wildfire across the world. Mm -hmm. because it really does not demand anything of us as citizens and of the political uh, establishment you know, it, to ask anything of its more kind of privileged citizens. So it's a kind of win-win situation for everyone to use smart uh, and, and use us as a trope for urban transformations. But of course, it it is rooted in a legacy of disadvantages and structural disadvantages. Iona, thank you so much for sharing that. You, you brought up some really important points, um, especially about how the social context for smart cities like these embedded and, and long-standing social and cultural inequalities in these places, they really shape the distribution and the reception of so-called smart solutions. Other countries have been pursuing smart city initiatives that are somewhat tailored to each city's regional identity and assets. We talked to Ryan Burns, uh, who you met in our first episode, who has spent a few years looking at Calgary, Canada and their smart city challenge. It's literally a world away from India and Shimla, where Iona did her smart cities research. But in this context, Ryan is also looking at these policies through the framework of coloniality. Ryan, I think the term you actually use to explore Calgary's smart city challenge is digital neocolonialism. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? I did not coin the term digital neocolonialism, but I was attracted to it because of the nuance it gave. When a lot of people talk about digital colonialism, they sort of lump a lot of really nuanced, diverse, and complex processes into one label that doesn't really accurately capture a lot of processes and relations and individuals and actors and so on. So I really wanted to use this term digital neocolonialism to flesh it out, conceptualize it a little bit more deeply, and think about what it gives us when we're thinking about smart cities and extraction and exploitative relationships in the smart city, what does neo neocolonialism as a conceptual framework give us? And so the, the key difference is that in the, in the 20th century, across the world, we started to see formal withdrawal of imperial countries from their colonies, the UK from Africa, France from Africa, and so on and so on. However, as Kwame Nkrumah said, he, he pointed out as the first president of Ghana that when these countries withdrew from their colonies, they really just replaced those relations of power with other relations of power that benefited them. So yes, there was a formal withdrawal of military and government officials and so on, but it was replaced by what we can think of as like soft relations, cultural relations, economic relations, instruments, dead, dead instruments, and so on. And so, um, and, and so this was a very important distinction that, yes, you could say that these countries were now sovereign, but in a lot of ways, they were just as beholden to the colonial powers as before. And so that's sort of the, the tension that we're trying to tease out with this term digital neocolonialism, is that if we think of digital colonialism as, again, some of these large actors, the state, private, multinational corporations, and so on, they might exert a lot of important influence on how the smart city operates and looks through setting internet protocols, through setting large 
national scale political economic frameworks and imperatives, but there's still a very large presence of sort of free market cultural associations that and normative assumptions about what the smart city should do and can do that that the idea of neocolonialism helps us better get at, I think. And so it's it's about a more diffuse set of relations, power, extraction, and so on. So, for example, if the nation state of Canada were extracting data from its citizens, we would probably have a lot of recourses, democratic recourses, to contest those extraction processes or to say um, you're collecting the wrong data or you shouldn't collect this data, that sort of thing. However, when it's Google co collecting a lot of data about you, you oftentimes have no recourse for contesting that collection. But even more importantly, you don't know where those data go. So they can be sold to further actors who sell it to further actors and so on and so on. And so you don't know where that chain of data goes. You don't know how they act on it. You don't know what kinds of influence it wields on your life. And so that's what I think digital neocolonialism helps better get at. And you're in Calgary. It's super interesting that you look at smart cities and data as these kind of extractive enterprises then. You're harvesting, packaging, commodifying data like it's a natural resource. And Calgary is also at the center of Canada's energy economy. Do you think there's some kind of continuity there or like a relationship between these phases of political economy? Sure, and to contextualize the Calgary case a little bit more, the smart city program and a lot of the technology stuff that's happening here is a is part of a broader effort to diversify the economy a little bit because it has been dominated by oil and, oil and gas for about 70 years or so. And so the the newest push is to say um, our economy is a little bit more robust, a little bit less prone to booms and busts if we have some secondary industries and, and tertiary industries that kind of help s smooth out the booms and bust cycles. So that's sort of where a lot of the tech stuff is coming from, especially the smart city program. But, uh, but you're absolutely right. It, it sort of follows a lot of the same logics and the same metaphors and the same ways of thinking about resources in the city. And so in a lot of ways, it just sort of reproduces those same logics and rationalities that, that dominated the, the cities and the provinces politics for the last 70 years. So how, how does the Canadian Smart Cities Challenge work exactly? Is this a top-down federal program or is it by province or, or city? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's, it, it's all of the above because the nation, Canada, had a Smart Cities Challenge a few years ago. They're actually renewing it in this current budget cycle. They just announced in the last few months that they're going to do another Smart Cities Challenge. And so this sort of sets a framework for municipalities generally to say, please give us this $5 million because we want to be a smart city because we're going to do X, Y, Z or Z for the Canadians. And um, we, so, so, you know, it sets some priorities, some frameworks, and then municipal governments respond to that. And, and you see that take different forms across the globe because most, uh, many countries have a very similar program. The U.S. had one as well, two actually. And so, you know, I've done some, some very basic analyses of, of the different ways 
that cities pitch their smart city programs to these national programs. In Canada, in the US, they look very different from each other, but then these two countries look wildly different from the smart cities challenge in India, for example, and in the United Kingdom and so on. So these all look different in very different, in different countries, and, and, and that's itself pretty interesting for me, I think. I was a little bit heartened to see that the first round of Canadian Smart Cities Challenge applications focused less on glitzy, high-tech um, solutionism and more on pretty deeply rooted political problems. Like, can we just introduce a small set of technologies to help relieve food insecurity and transport inaccessibility and those kinds of things? Some, some deep-rooted problems that are almost certainly not solvable through digital technologies, but they, the technologies might be able to do something to help a little bit. So last time we started talking about database ethnography, which is kind of how you examine the organization of open data in these studies. Um, maybe start with open data. What is it? How does it operate? Where do you see problems with it? Open data is a social and political formation that serves certain kinds of roles and functions in society, especially in urban society. And, you know, there are lots of historical parallels that we could draw to help us understand what those roles and functions are. Uh, one would be the growth of the nonprofit sector in the late 80s and early 90s with the rollback of the state to provide social welfare provisions and, and the, the neoliberalization, free marketization of public services and, and functions um, necessitated that the nonprofit sector step in to fill in a lot of those gaps, not just the specific functions of government, but also to tame the disorder that's present in all capitalist uh, accumulation contexts. Waste pickers, for example, or um, you know, homeless shelters, food kitchens, and that kind of thing. So uh, you know, there was a concomitant rise of nonprofits at the same time as the rollback of the state. So you can draw a lot of parallels here. One parallel would be that the city sees a lot of potential in offloading the analysis and actioning labor onto volunteers. I really highly doubt that any city, any particular city government official sits down and says, okay, how can we cut costs? Let's not pay an analyst. Let's instead hold a datathon. Nobody thinks about it that way. They think about this as a really interesting opportunity, but again, it serves a very important political role. Yeah, so a lot in, in, in a lot of my work I've written on datathons and hackathons and even data production as, um, as, as an invisibilized labor. Um, I have a paper on moral economies, for example, where I, where I argue that a lot of the data production and then the analysis and acting on the data is recruited through deploying kind of feel-good messages. You're helping your community. You're going to make your hobbies and everyday activities better for everyone around you you know so, so so contribute your data from your smartwatch from your phone contribute your data to these projects so that we can make our city a better place and you know that so so there's uh there's some research projects in the city of calgary that i've looked at around wearable technologies for bicyclists as a way of producing data for the smart city and then the analysis and extraction of insights or production of insights 
through datathons and hackathons is kind of signaling this growth of data for good kinds of organizations and um, girls who code where they're trying to deploy these moral economies help help STEM become less white and male by by responsibilizing women, responsibilizing people of color to say, hey, it's on you to fix this. Rather than acknowledging that there's a, there's a, a massive pipeline issue involved, like as Sophia Noble has pointed out in her book, Algorithms of Oppression, there are plenty of high schoolers who are very interested in STEM across all kinds of racial and gender lines. You pointed out a lot of important dilemmas with open data, extraction, exploitation, and casualization, which really drives home how major economic transitions at the macro level, like deindustrialization or neoliberalism, end up affecting how data is governed and generated and cataloged, and then how that data ends up being instrumentalized as information or, or knowledge. David Banks, who we also heard from in the last episode, approaches this from a totally different angle. David, in your book, you look at how cities leverage cultural perceptions to jumpstart economic recoveries. You're looking in upstate New York, but it seems like the lessons you draw could be applied to thousands of struggling post-industrial communities around the world. So this, uh, the, the title of my book is, you know, is, is a phrase I came up with that I, I argue is basically the third movement in um, city reform, right? And and I don't mean like social movement in the sense of like this like grassroots kind of like change, but it is it, it is definitely a social and political change, but it's like a professional reform movement. It's like internal to uh, uh, urban planners and probably more importantly, economic development professionals, people who work in industrial development authorities, chambers of commerce, sort of like regional and city um uh, uh, economic development uh, uh, offices that uh, have lots of different titles. But uh, the City Authentic leverages our desire for like urban living while also recognizing uh, increasing cost of living is becoming untenable. And so the, you leverage like those push and pull factors of like wanting to live in a city, but it being rather unaffordable to uh, create these um, uh, competitive advantages uh, in small, in, usually in smaller and medium-sized cities, but also in larger cities, neighborhoods will uh, play off each other in this way, so that you can say, like, well, yeah, you still want to be able to, like, you know, maybe walk, uh, be, live in a walkable neighborhood that can go to a nice coffee shop, and maybe there's like something nice to do outside in summer on the weekend, right? And you can all like walk to these things, and and you have like uh, what is generally considered, you know, like a, a nice urban lifestyle that's maybe the, the opposite of like the suburban uh, cookie cutter neighborhood that a lot of millennials probably grew up in, right? So you, you want to do the opposite of that. But then you find that most uh, major cities, big cities, um, you can't afford to live in uh, or you can't afford to do the things that signal kind of like or feel like you're living in a... Uh, um, an urban neighborhood uh, at the price points that are available in big cities. And so smaller ones have been able to say like, hey, if you want that experience, uh, here's what the average uh, rental price is for a two bedroom. Here's all the fun things you can do. And and, and people move to those. Um, 
uh, as a result. There, that is uh, somewhat an, an effective campaign, although you also see a lot of displacement. And so also a lot of cities uh, make small gains in population or stay steady. So we kind of touched on this before, but the, the city authentic is doing some work as a metaphor here. Um, because you place it in a genealogy of other city typologies. Can you talk about that historical trajectory a little bit um, and maybe help us understand how perceptions of cities and really, you know, public identity have always been important to a city's growth and economic position? Uh, this is, uh, like I said, the, the, la- uh, the last or third of, of, of um, uh, three other movements. And the, the first one, the City Beautiful movement, uh, if you ever took like a, an, a, a history of cities or a, um, maybe even an American history course, you heard about this. This is when, uh, as the American frontier in the West closed, uh, Eastern banks and capital had to find new ways to invest money. And they were looking to uh, um, uh, the newly rebuilt Paris and uh, what was starting to happen in London and say, ah, we need to like, compete with these European cities as like the new center of, uh, quote unquote, like, you know, Western civilization. Right. And so, uh, the, the, um, uh, moneyed interests start putting a ton of, uh, capital into cities, uh, as a one sort of a hedge against rising, um, uh, left-wing radicalism because, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Carnegie is like, hey, you know, I'll, I'd like to keep my head if you, I'll give you a library, right? So, like, there, there's stuff like that, but also, of course, the library gets put in a in a place where poor people used to live. They get all displaced and, you know, and, uh, and this, of course, all happening on a backdrop of um, uh, Native American genocide, right? But uh, in general, the, the idea is, you know, a really rich person signals to slightly less rich people that it's time to invest in a city by building a big thing. And, uh, and these big things are beautiful. And a lot of them, uh, remain kind of our, our shared, um, uh, cultural and, uh, historic kind of like heritage, uh, in these big cities, they are generally loved buildings. Um, uh, and, and, and so in, in general, the, the city is supposed to be like a very artistic, beautiful, sculpted thing. By the end of World War II, this changes into a uh, focus into efficiency. So instead of the steel and steam power that both funded and built the city beautiful, now we're moving into um, the power of code, right? And uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and not just um, computer code, like the inversion in computer in uh, IT infrastructure is helping sort of manage the logistics of new cities, especially in the American South. But it's also um, the code of like um, uh, uh, zoning, right? And, the, uh, and, and different sorts of zoning codes that say uh, very specific things about how many units to the acre can be here versus, you know, how tall the building can be over there. This is, uh, and so the rationalizing of the city marks sort of the the um the main points of the city efficient movement you get figures like harlan bartholomew who's kind of like the johnny appleseed of professional planning going around making sure that cities have these planning departments that his company um produces uh, in a lot of ways and you know then we get credentialed planning like in all the departments like the one i work in today but then there's also um figures like um 
Le Cabousier, right? You know, like the, uh, uh, and the um, Congress, for, uh, the International Congress of uh, um, Architects, that uh, modern architects that um, uh, sort of talk about buildings should be very efficient, uh, um, things that uh, you either live in or work in, and the, the two shall not meet. And, you ha- and so you start thinking about places in these very rational, purpose-built ways. And so that's the city efficient and the city authentic, in addition to what I described earlier, is also sort of a reaction to that utilitarianism and a bringing back or at least a, uh, a, a desire to um, uh, keep and preserve a lot of the city beautiful stuff and then try to make more of it, though our political economy makes it very difficult to do because land prices are so high, the building um, has to um, be very cheap to build. And so there's always that tension there of like um, creating an authentic place uh, is materially, economically very uh, difficult to see at least the, 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 the symbols of it, specifically because of the historic uh, progress of these three movements. Maybe there's a case to be made about the city authentic being like a kind of genre in the smart city movement. Although it's definitely leveraging a different kind of data, a more qualitative kind of data, than what we tend to expect from smart cities. David's book examines how social media platforms, like Instagram especially, have played an important role in mediating outside perceptions of places, like the post-industrial communities that he researches. We're going to dig into that more in our next episode about urban platforms. But so far, we've definitely covered a wide range of the critiques of smart cities. But it seems like many of our guests are really pointing out the general conditions that mobilize smart city design and policy. Driven by an imperative to surveil, order, and optimize, smart city infrastructures are also frequently developed in partnership with private companies which are inherently driven by profit motives. But as Professor Dada pointed out earlier from her fieldwork, smartness doesn't have to necessarily stem from these factors. I don't think smart is about technology. I think smart is about making do the best with what you have. And in a way that's also about resource efficiency, but he's really he was really speaking to the struggles of people in the margins. And he said, well, I earned very little money, but with that, I'm able to live, you know, have a family, keep a family, educate my children so that they have a better future. So being smart is about making the best with what you have. In our last episode, uh, Shannon Mattern shared a really fascinating historical and anthropological perspective on the dashboard, like how it operates to filter out extraneous or irrelevant information. She also had a lot to say um, much like the man that Professor Dada described, about what smartness can actually mean once it's separated from the impulses of capital or colonialism. A smart city is not just a sensor-embedded, dashboarded urban realm. We also have to recognize, and our cities would be much better governed, more inclusive, if we also recognize that there are plenty of institutions there and people with um, expertise there who have um, manifested forms of smartness that we have to integrate with the more kind of digital sensor AI-driven smartness. A library is one great place where multiple forms of intelligence coalesce. Next time, platforms. 
We'll be talking to John Stalen more about his research on platform urbanism and revisiting our conversations with David Banks, Shannon Mattern, and Aaron McElroy. Because the platform, when we talk about digital platforms, we're basically talking about multi-sided markets uh, between multiple different actors um, that benefit from network effects um, and that have a sort of an algorithmic logic to how those markets are structured, right? And so uh, a company like Facebook convenes this social world, right? And then generates revenue based on privileged access to this consumer pool, right? And their data, right? And so that sounds like a city in a way, right? You've been listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast by Urban Affairs Review. Special thanks to the Lindy Institute at Drexel University and the editors at UAR. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. The show was produced and mixed by David Weems and written, hosted, and produced by me, Emily Holloway. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, urbanaffairsreview.com, for more information about the journal and the show, and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. See you next time.